Welcome to Central Speaks, home of our weekly podcast. Central Speaks is produced by Hamilton Central Baptist Church. Thank Brian for the opportunity to uh, speak this morning about uh, my journey of becoming to be a missionary. And, you know, I find it an incredible, immense privilege to be sent out by Hamilton Central Baptist, my church home for 26 years. Yeah. And to be sent out to the work for which the Lord has called me to. Now, behind this journey, however, has been a longer personal journey. It's really been about the last four years as I've listened to God and let Him shape my life according to the pattern that He wants for it. And throughout this time of exploring God's call on my life, I've had something that I've called like a calling verse. Um, And it's been a verse of Scripture that's encouraged me and also challenged me about missions. It's helped me to reflect on why I should do and um, what the meaning of becoming a missionary is in the first place. And that verse, my calling verse, is John 12, 24 to 25. It sits inside a greater context in Scripture, so instead of two verses... Uh, we'll just look this morning at the slightly wider context, John 12, verses 20 to 26. And before we just read it, a little bit of context to the passage, it's situated at the pinnacle of John's gospel, John's account of Jesus' life. And it's situated in what is called Passion Week. And the events that are written in these few verses directly precede the day of rest and crucifixion. Now, situated as they are inside the most important week of Jesus' mystery here on earth, we might expect they would have something important to teach us about, firstly, the true purpose of Jesus' mission on earth, and secondly, what it really means for us to have Jesus as the Lord of our life. And indeed, we'll find that it does do this. So now, the passage. John 12, 26. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we'd like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Now Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to... Very truly I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now, this section in Scripture is extremely interesting. Some Greeks want to speak with Jesus. Why is that interesting, you ask? Well, it's because it's almost unthinkable that Greeks from the proud Greek culture would be interested in seeking out a Jewish itinerant holiness teacher from a backwater province uh, such as Jesus. 
It's quite likely then Greeks are what were called God-fearers. That is, they were admirers of Jewish monotheism and the morality present in Jewish religion. And they sought to live by its principles in their own life. Even though, according to Moses, they were outside of the community of God. These Greeks may even have been present in the court of the Gentiles, which was the outermost court in the Jewish temple where non-Jews were, when Jesus cleared the sellers and money changers just a few days prior. And perhaps this decisive act of piety, which is what piqued the Greeks' interest in Jesus. But what also makes this interchange even more interesting is Jesus' response. Instead of talking to the Greeks as you might expect Jesus to do, he instead announces that his time has come. Now, perhaps Jesus did actually talk with these Greek inquirers later, but what John is more focused on in recording in his gospel is Jesus' proclamation that the interest of the Greeks in his ministry heralds the highest and most important point of his ministry on earth. And on face value, that seems a bit strange because for anyone who's familiar with the gospel accounts, they know that about to happen is Jesus' imminent betrayal and crucifixion. And yet Jesus calls that his glorification. Now, if calling that a moment of vacation, being put to death as a criminal, sounds strange to you, then let me assure you that to the people of Jesus' day, it sounded just as strange, and to no one would it sound stranger than to Jesus' own followers. Remember the triumphal entry several days earlier, when people crowded the streets to welcome Jesus to Jerusalem? Do you think they thought they're welcoming a soon-to-be-executed criminal? No. Many of Jesus' followers saw Jesus as the imminent future king of Israel. King in a physical and temporal sense who would throw out the Roman overlords and grant independence to God's chosen country. However, what Jesus' supporters didn't realize was that God's desire was for his people to have a deeper experience of freedom because the root of their problem was the Romans. It wasn't a lack of political independence. The root of their problem, full of sin. And there is only one thing, says the Scriptures, that can atone for sin, and that is the shed blood of a perfect Substitute, a substitute without spot. And when the Greeks approached Jesus, Jesus knew that his time had come because here, at last, finally, were people outside of the kingdom of God, outside of the family of God, that is, the state of uh, the country of Israel, who were ready to hear the gospel. They were ready to hear that through the shed blood of Jesus, God's Son on the cross, those Outside the family are made and can enter in to God's community and receive the abundant life and blessing that comes from fellowship with God. And so this reveals the true purpose of Jesus' mission. To the gates of heaven, 
to throw wide the gates of the kingdom of God so that people of all nations and tribes and languages would come to know Jesus as their Lord and receive life in His name. Now, perhaps for you this morning, you already call Jesus as your Lord. You already know Him as you save, and you already know the significance of what He's done for you. That your life now has incredible value. That you have a new sense of purpose, and that your wrongdoing in the past has been blotted out in God's sight. But what I'd like to draw your attention to this morning is how life has been attained. Firstly, there's nothing that you've done to attain your own salvation. And secondly, your new standing before God achieved through Jesus voluntarily giving up his life. This is the supreme example of what I call the principle of life through death. And we see this principle again in what Jesus says in verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for life. Now, it's impossible to see this in our English Bibles, but in this verse, there are actually two different words in the Greek that are used to mean life. The first word is and literally, it means the soul. It's the seat of one's minds and emotions, which to uh, the Greek mind, that is the essence of life. And the second word that's used in this passage is zoe aionios. Zoe is another word that means life in Greek, and aionios means eternal. And it's from the same root where we get the word aeon in English. Actually, Zoe Aeonios is translated as eternal life, but it means something deeper than simply a life that has no end. In the Bible, agelessness is something that only God, and consequently, the word eternal is actually a reference to God's divine nature. So it talks about eternal life. What it means is a new divine quality of life that comes from being of God. Now, therefore, we could retranslate verse 25 into a paraphrase, something like this. Anyone who lives for themselves will die, while anyone who gives being for themselves in this world attains the richness and fullness of life that comes from the kingdom of God. That's the Campbell translation. Now, let me assure you that life is a life that transcends death. It is a life that doesn't end. But for John, it also begins the moment you are born again. It's an eternal life that doesn't wait for the resurrection. Now, we must compare these two ways of living. The first, living according to your psyche. Living according to your, your own soul, what you think is right. And living in Zoe Aeonios. Firstly, when you live by your psyche, you are ruled by your emotions and by what you think is right. Now, this seems like the dream of a modern liberal, and in fact, it's at the heart of modern psychology, I think, uh, but it overlooks one important thing. 
And that is the wickedness of the human heart. John Calvin, the great reformer, famously once described the human heart as a factory for idols. And by that, he means that the human condition is to have anything, anything at all, but real creator seated on the throne of your heart. It could be money. It could be your job. It could be your reputation in the eyes of others. And consequentially, living at whatever it is that currently holds your attention and not living a life ruled by the peace of Christ will lead to alienation from God, alienation from others, and in the end, the soul's action. But when you live by Zoe Aeonios, however, you still have your will and emotions, and you still have your mental capacities, and your individual likes and dislikes, but the difference is that you subject your will to God's will. You choose to live under God's wisdom and accept that when you and he differ in opinion, it's him that is to put God, the author of life, onto the throne of your heart and to recognize that we are but clay on God's divine potting wheel and we agree to become Whatever water shapes us to be. This is living in Zeonios. This is living with the great peace and joy that comes from being held by God in his kingdom. But how this path of self-denial may seem scary at first. But let me remind you, since God is the author of life, it's self-evident that he knows the best way that it is to be lived. And it's this kind of self-denial, says Jesus, that the only way to have true life is found. Now, knowing that we have this choice between a superficial, selfish way of living, that is, living according to one's own psyche, and a rich and fulfilling way of life, eternal life in the kingdom, we must ask ourselves the question, how am I? Am I living for myself? Is life all about what I can get from it? Or am I currently enjoying the insurance and peace that comes from every day? Everything I do is for my heavenly master. And instead of trying living to try and make myself happy, I'm living to try and make God happy. Now, Remember that it comes only from faith in what Jesus has already done for you on the cross. Or, in other words, a Christian can never make God more pleased with them than he already is. But it's more like this. Think of people who are deeply in love with each other and deeply committed towards each other. It is just natural that one of them would give up their own preference in order to seek to do whatever pleases the other. And that is the same with us and with the Lord. We respond to his amazing and extravagant love towards us with the love of him that slowly steps out in boldness and daring. Now, in case you're not sure where your love for Jesus is at, I have a few tests for you. Now, the first test is about money. What are you doing with your income? 
Do you spend it all on yourself or your own family? Or do you allocate some of your discretionary income towards God's work? Now, what about your time? Does God get a special part of your day? Or does he only get a special part of your week on Sunday? And lastly, what about your boundaries and your comfort zone? When have helped a stranger substantially who was in need? And have you ever shown hospitality by inviting someone you didn't know around for lunch after church? Or is your comfort zone something that you hide behind avoid talking with strangers? Now, all of these are challenging and they all sound hard. And that's because they are. They require a dying to self. And no one ever said dying is pleasant or easy. But we have the calming assurance that when we leave our comfort zones and we put God's priorities first in our lives, we, then we will have the presence of Jesus with us. In verse 26, Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. When we are following him, doing what he wants us, we will be with him. We will have his presence with us. But you know what? Knowing that Jesus empowers us for radical obedience, it comes with this corollary. And the corollary is he actually expects such obedience from us. That's his will for us, what he's wanting for us. He wants us to become the mature grain that will fall into the earth and die so that the farmer, his father in heaven, will reap an abundant and you know, that is actually what Jesus had already done for us. He modeled what it was like to be the grain who was willing to give up everything, even his own life, in order to seek his will so that all of us would be the benefactors. All of us would be the grain that would reap the rewards. Jesus' will for us is that we would lose ourselves in nurturing of our heavenly Father's kingdom here on earth. And that conviction, that conviction is what led me to serve as a missionary. Now, while I'm convinced that the gospel must go, has not yet been, and it must go to the peoples who have not yet heard it, I believe also that wherever God has planted you, there is some work of the kingdom that he is inviting you to take part in. And there is some area of your that God is inviting you to deny yourself in so that the principle of life through death can be worked out and the kingdom of God will grow. Now, this morning with the story of the first Moravian missionaries. Now, the Moravian missionary movement was deeply significant because it instigated the wider modern Protestant missions movement, which WIC actually is a... Is at. And the history of the Moravians was that they were forced out of their homeland in Bohemia for following the teachings of Jan Hus, the pre-Protestant reformer. And they found billeted on the land of one Count Zizendorf in Hernhut, Saxony, in modern-day Germany. And when they were there, they started a prayer vigil, someone, at least one person, praying 24 hours a week. And that prayer vigil lasted for over 100 years. 
And one of the powerful offshoots of that prayer vigil was that God began to stir up in the heart of the community a lost who, were, who had not yet even heard of Jesus, let alone what he had done for them. And the first fruits of that new hunger to serve the lost with the gospel were Tuhan Duba and David Nichman. And they sought to preach the gospel to the slaves of the Caribbean. They encountered a problem, however, as they couldn't find anyone who was able to ship them there. And as they could find no passage, still feeling the urgency to continue with God's appointed mission, Johann and David offered that they would obtain their passage to the Caribbean, finding themselves as slaves, and thereby be transported to the Caribbean in order that they might become slaves to the slaves. Now, I find this example of Johann and David an extremely powerful example, an extremely powerful example of putting into practice the principle of life through death. They were bold and daring enough to risk all, even their own liberty, in order to persist to the call of God on their lives. And although God is likely not calling you to do something quite so extreme, their story is a demonstration of what a Christian life can be that is filled with a vibrant faith and is willing to give up everything in order to know, to love and know their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, better. And now I'll finish with the words of C.T. Studd, the founder of... We will dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for Him. And we will do it with His joy, unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts. Thanks for joining us this week online. Come join us on Sunday mornings too if you're in Hamilton. Find out more about Hamilton Central Baptist Church and discover ways to get involved at www.hcbc.nz. Join us again next week at Central Speaks.